can't pay the IRS, haven't filed in a while, receiving threatening letters? Yeah, it's about to get worse. The IRS is hiring an army of agents targeting hardworking Americans like you. You need warriors on your side. You need Tax Network USA. Tax Network USA has brilliant strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. For instance, they've discovered a limited-time special offer that the IRS is willing to waive $1 billion in penalties. Find out if you qualify before it's too late. Never call the IRS alone. Let Tax Network USA attorneys handle it. They have preferred direct lines to the IRS. They know which agents to work with and which to avoid. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debts and offer a best-in-class guarantee. Schedule your free consultation now. Call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit TNUSA.com slash Victor. TNUSA.com slash Victor. Hello and welcome to the Victor Davis Hanson Show. This is our weekend episode, so we will look at things cultural. And we have a special guest this week. Dr. Stephen Quay has returned to talk a little bit more about COVID and pandemics. So we will hear him first, and then Victor will turn to his historical discussion. And this week, as we promised, it will be historians. So we'll be looking at Herodotus, Thucydides, and Xenophon in the Greek tradition. So stay with us, and we'll be right back. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back. I would like to remind everybody that Victor is the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow in Military History and Classics at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. We would like to welcome Dr. Stephen Quay, and I'm going to hand it over to Victor at this point. Thank you, Sammy. And uh, we're going to make a big transition from classical Greek historians to uh, return of one of our favorite guests, Dr. Stephen Quay. Remember, he uh, has given some miraculous and revealing interviews with us about the origins of COVID and the long story of its uh, development in China and no doubt at the lab. And since I've talked to him last, uh, there's been some new developments and no one is better qualified than Stephen to talk about. He's got a PhD and MD from the University of Michigan. He was on the 
faculty of Stanford Law School. He started six biopharmaceutical companies. And uh, I'm, I was uh, always amazed about your current um, Seattle-based therapeutics called Atasa, which is out of, it's a uh, Persian name out of the text of Herodotus for uh, Xerxes' mother, isn't it? It absolutely was. And yeah. and it's, uh, she was the first woman in recorded history with breast cancer. Yeah, it's in the so, text of Herodotus, as I remember. Exactly. That was, yeah. that was uh, the basis for picking that name. Yeah. So anytime you see that, that combination of theta, theta, or sigma, sigma, and this, it can't be a Greek word. So there's not, and so I, you, you know, it's a foreign word, but uh, so You've you've been busy, Stephen, with the Freedom of Information Act, new information since I talked to you last, and since our listeners heard you. So, w w what's what's new? What, what has changed, yeah. if anything, yeah. the story of the the origins of COVID and the people involved who haven't been quite candid and transparent about it? Yeah. So, and 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 just to be absolutely clear, Victor. So, I want to update everyone on on the origin and and why it it, it came from, likely came from this laboratory. But I, I do want to pivot because this I, I want to get I want to show why this topic to me is mm -hmm. important for the the election coming up this fall. Why I think there's an unclaimed issue um, that I want to bring up, and and you know maybe if 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 enough of your 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 listeners can, you know contact enough of their congressmen or things, it could become a, an important issue because I think it's I think it's really critical. Well, I'll be so, sure. I'm looking at some of my notes, and I'll be sure to bring it up. But I want you here to. Uh... I, I, I've read some notes about it, what you're going to say, but I want you to, to explain it so I can better articulate it sure. to pe people that I come in contact with. Ab absolutely, Victor. So let's frame it. So we've known for about a year that a, a grant proposal by four scientists, two American, two Chinese, four scientists, um, looked like it predicted that, you know, if you followed this grant proposal, you start with a bat virus. You add a furin cleavage site, which is a fancy thing that cuts the spike, and you and you grow it on human cells. You're going to get a virus that transmits very quickly in humans uh, and has features that have never been seen in nature. So we we've known that for about a year. What the latest FOIA uh, release showed us was some details that kind of puts an, puts the nail in the coffin on that. The here's why the original proposal said that. The synthetic virus was going to be made in North Carolina, not in China. And of course, so the people that were supporting a natural spillover said, well, look, at the virus came from China. The grant said it was going to come from the U.S. And so uh, that's obviously a no, Are we a talking mis about 2019? The what's the time frame here? Steve? So so this grant proposal was 2018 mm. to the Department of Defense. OK. Um, so they wanted to they wanted to to make this virus synthetically spray it in caves wow. to immunize. I mean, it's it's pretty crazy science. And as I like to say, the Department of Defense, who brought us, you know, Agent Orange during the Vietnam War, thought this was too risky. And so they didn't fund this work. Um, but, it, you know, being a faculty member at Stanford Medical School and all of that, you you know, very clearly when you write a grant proposal, you probably already have done some of the work and you're probably likely to do it, whether it's funded or not. You'll find a yeah. way to get it done uh, after you go all to the, the creativity of writing the grant. Uh, you just want to finish the project. So so the grant said in 2018 they were going to do the work in the U.S. and make the virus in North Carolina. Well, when you what came out were the 
the drafts of the grant. So the, the scientists are sending it back and forth. They're putting marginal comments in there. And and one of the U.S. scientists is Peter Daszak from the New York City-based EcoHealth Alliance said in the margin, say, hey, look, it, we will tell the Department of Defense we'll do this in the U.S., but once the money comes in, we can shift the synthetic work to, to China because it, it can go faster there. They have lower biosafety standards. Uh, you know, they're talking about how, how good this is going to be. Yeah, I, I just think about that. And, and Ralph Varick says, well, if U.S. virologists knew knew we were going to do it in China this way, they would freak out. And that he actually uses the we word freak and this out. Is all, this is all on documents from the Freedom of Information. Correct. Correct. Wow. Wow. So, okay, you know, so then, so then they they propose this stuff. They don't get the DOD to do it, but they go ahead anyway. Well, that that's what the I mean that's what the presumption is. But now, so the 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 defense that the grant couldn't have been how the virus was made because the grant said it was going to happen in North Carolina. We now know that's that's a false statement. <laughs> we now yeah. know that's a that's a completely false statement. And the other uh, the other FOIA release was around a the first sequence of the virus that was ever uh, submitted to a database. So there's something called Gene Bank, so G-E-N Bank, uh, and it's, it's run by the NIH. And so all scientists around the world upload uh, genetic sequences 24-7 uh, for any sort of research you're doing. Um, and so what we found out was that on December 28th, 2019, so this is uh, quite old, uh, the first sequence was uploaded by a scientist in China. And then three weeks later, he, he took it down before it became public. So the world could have known on December 28th what the virus sequence was. So you're talking the about the SARS virus that caused yes. that later was revealed to cause COVID-19. That's right. That's yeah. exactly okay. right. And so That's he exactly had right. a Chinese scientist had uploaded it. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was a dangerous thing for him to do, probably. Huh? Well, it was. And then he probably got called out and he brought it down. So wow. two interesting facts about that scientist. N- number one, he worked at a PLA affiliated hospital. So he, he, he's doing, you know, quote, civilian research, but he's doing it at a military hospital. And they have a, a longstanding practice of military civilian fusion in their research. So that's that's mm-hmm. we knew that. And that's what would be expected. But. Of all the organizations, this is like Casablanca, of all the organizations in the world that he could have been affiliated with, he was a grantee from EcoHealth Alliance. <laughs> so so Francis Collins and then... Was EcoHealth Alliance getting uh, money from the NIH or the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases under Fauci's direction? <clears throat> absolutely, absolutely. So, wow. so you know, to, <clears throat> to put a fine point on it, Francis Collins at the NIH gave money to uh, NIAID, uh, uh, run by by Fauci, who gave money to EcoF Alliance in New York, who gave money to China. Um, And so the the groups that planned to make this virus in 2018 also included the first people who ever saw the sequence, okay, uh, on December 28th. Now... The, the 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 thing. So what I did was I tried to put myself in, in the position of, OK, I'm one of those four scientists. I've written a grant to do to put a furin cleavage site in to put this fancy clipping spot uh, and I'm going to grow it in animals. So I know it's going to transmit human to human. <clears throat> I write this grant and then I, you know, I, I let's say I don't do the work, but it took me 10 minutes with the sequence from December 28th and some programs that you have on your, your computer to study genomes to study genetics took me 10 minutes to show that this virus had the furin cleavage site had this clipping site and 
would transmit rapidly from humans to humans. So I would know on December 28th that this virus was going to jump human to human very easily and will probably what, cause an epidemic or pandemic. So what you were able to do that in the present. What prevented people from doing that at, at the critical time that would have staved off the virus? Is it the fact that they didn't have this Freedom of Information Act information, so well, they well, couldn't download it and they didn't do what you did? So so the most of the world... Again, if you if you know there's something, if you if there's no, you know there's a fear in sight you're looking for. If you know you're looking for how, how good is it at human to human transmission, you use a particular set of programs and you can get that information in ten minutes. If you're if you're just seeing this new virus, uh, you know, de novo, that it's not going to occur to you to do that. And this is this is the fundamental law that I think uh, is most important for your for your listeners to understand since the what, what what's what's the first plague is it the anton in 6 165 AD it's you know something like that yeah right so, so every every um, a jump of a virus or, or a pathogen to humans has been a slow slow process so you know if you're an infectious disease doctor and you have this person with a brand new virus okay it's bad and this person might die or they might not die but the one thing you're not going to think of is I'm going to I'm not going to worry about human to human transmission because this is just appearing in humans it's going to take it months or years to adapt. Um, SARS-1 took five months to go from infecting humans occasionally to being an epidemic. It, 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 MERS has been jumping from camels to humans for a decade. It still hasn't perfected human-to-human transmission. Mm. So you're, you're, you're teaching in medical school, all of your ground, your decades of information is there will not be human-to-human transmission. And so we will build our policies around the fact that we're going to have weeks or months or even years before we have to worry about that. WHO said mid-January, there's, there's no evidence of human-to-human transmission. Yeah. Finally, by February, they were saying, you know, it looks like human-to-human transmission is occurring. Okay. So again, why, why is that important and what would you do? Well, look, at if I'm one of those four scientists who predicted I was, you know, I was going to make a virus that would transmit from human to human in the laboratory very efficiently. And then I get this virus that looks like it comes from nature, but I drop it into these programs. Ten minutes later, I say, oh, gosh, this has exactly the two things we predicted were going to happen. It's coming out of the city of, of one of our other collaborators on our grant. The next thing you need to do is you need to call the CDC or the NIH or Fauci or anybody who will take your phone calls and say, look at this thing is going to transmit from human to human from the get-go. We need to do certain steps to stop that. Wow. Now, what they did in January, we do know they had lots of conversations, and these very scientists talked to these very government officials. They talked about, well, it came from a wet market, and so we need to talk, you know, we need to build that narrative. Unfortunately, that narrative supports the concept that this is not going to transmit to human to human. It's going to be slow. You don't have to do mitigation. Do you think that these techniques. new documents that have been released make it pretty clear that they knew that animal pangolin bat narrative was not possible given what they were doing? That they were that they knew that they knew the 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 real origins and the nature and the peril that people that this virus posed, and they didn't want to be candid because of their own their own conduct, I guess. 
Well, that that's right. So what what would lead to them to, to be this way? And so for a decade, the scientists doing this dangerous virus research and the bureaucrats who have funded it have been, you know, together in almost a blind faith and uh, belief that this work was going to be useful someday. And, and and that was really the the mitigating factor. And so if you start if you start talking about well maybe it came from a laboratory. If you start talking about the fact that it's not natural, that it may have human to human spread early on, um, you're you're going to break that break that process. Now, <clears throat> I'm going on record uh, to say that we could have stopped ninety nine point eight percent of the one million deaths in the U S. with this information. So okay, so. The, let's just say that the two scientists in question, given what we know post facto, would have said, oh, my God, this thing has gone off the rails and we've got to do something and we still have time to do it. Well, and they had been candid with Fauci or they'd gone to Trump, H, you know, HH, something, or the CDC. What would have what would have taken? How could we have stopped it right then? Yeah. Victor, the, the reason I am so sure we could have stopped it right then is because one country did the right thing. Um, <clears> that was Taiwan, where I live part of the time. So and Taiwan has a unique problem with respect to COVID. Let's back up for your for your listeners here. Population 23 million. It's an island, you know, off the coast of China, 23 million people. They're, they're also Chinese, you know, ethnic. At any given day uh, before the COVID pandemic, 6% of their population, you know, was in mainland China, either visiting family, on vacation, doing business, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So if any country was going to get hit hard by a, by a virus from China, it would be, it'd be Taiwan with that huge flux going back on a constant basis. But that's, but that's not what happened. Um, Taiwan was monitoring um uh, WeChat, uh, you know, the, the social media in China, um, I actually interviewed the couple that did this. They were on their honeymoon in, they were on their honeymoon in London, um, two nice young doctors, one working for the CDC. And his job was listening to Wuhan WeChat. Um, and you know, he, he said to his, his new wife, before we go out, I have to check in. And, and he saw that there was a lot of chatter going on in, in, in Wuhan about a new virus. He called back to the CDC. They, they never got to the celebrations for the New Year's. But Taiwan began boarding airplanes on the 31st of December from mm -hmm. Wuhan. It's very simple. They, they sent, you know, the plane lands and before you get off, they send somebody down the aisles. They take a temperature. They just point it at your head. They go down there. Anybody that has a fever, they then put them in a special vehicle. They take them off and quarantine them. But but the, the inconvenience factor, it's probably 10, 15 minutes inconvenience for all those flights. Um, we could have done that very easily. And, and that would have given us if we had done that. That would have given us time to explore the virus, the vaccine and all of that. We would have had a margin of. Well, we wouldn't, we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't have nearly the number of people coming in. So what happened, mm. Ta Taiwan finally found a patient in early January that had, you know, COVID from this process. They isolated it, you know, they, they, um, and they, they isolated the 46 other passengers on the plane. Uh, and they were to stop it. So by April, this simple process for, for, uh, that Taiwan put in place, they had six deaths. In how did they? How did they finally end up? Did they finally get overwhelmed with different variants, or did or did they? They they let their guide their guard down. At, uh, when Omicron hit, they had let their guard down, um, and unfortunately, there was a pilot who was who was pretty active in the nightlife in Taiwan. 
Uh, and he brought Omicron in and, and then, we, you know, they had we ended that, up with that did mean that they avoided the most virulent early forms of the they virus. They did. They absolutely so did. Their so de- their total deaths per capita were lower than other countries. Yes. Well, yeah. well, you know, by for all of 2020, um, they had under 10 deaths for the entire population of 23 million. U- U.S. had 142,000. We, you know, we went up over half a million in 2020. Wow. So we could have been boarding flights from Wuhan. They, they were either L.A., Houston, or or New York, or I connecting remember. flights. I mean, the first case in America came from a student in Wuhan who came in through Seattle Airport. Took the, took the train into Seattle, exposed about 200 people, including people that worked in a uh, in a in a, uh, a senior citizens uh, home. So we wiped out senior citizens homes. No, I, I remember in I wrote Seattle. a col- column. There were four flights going into Texas, San Francisco, LAX and JFK at a time when the Chinese government had stopped internal flights in China coming out and going into Wuhan. They were <clears> green lighting <throat> flights coming to the United States yeah. and Europe. It's yeah. just, and yeah, so, this, so that's, that's, I don't want to interrupt, but continue yeah. then. So what, what, what's the significance in terms of policy or what did we learn or what, what's the, what are the ramifications Did either of the, any of these people face any ramifications? Will they ever face any? Well, this is interesting. So remember there are four scientists that wrote this grant, two in the, two in the U S two in China, <clears throat> Lin Fa Wong at Duke, uh, the National University of Singapore uh, has been director of their infectious disease for a decade. Um, he was called the Batman because he would go into caves and, and he really liked the bat. So the public uh, sequence of, of SARS-CoV-2 was January 10th of 2020. Uh, that was the first time the entire sequence was seen. What did Lin Fu Wong do that day? He resigned as director of his, of the infectious disease operation at, at Duke uh, uh, National University. So after a decade, he stepped down. Where um, is he now? Does he just. Disappear? Well, he, he's, he's he's he is still there. He, he, he he's quietly in the background. He doesn't seem to be doing too much research, but wow. they, they clearly took steps on that day with with him to, to change his relationship with the university. And, and the one Institute of Virology, the other Chinese location, went under the uh, directorship of a, of a a People's Liberation Army general who was a virologist, a woman who was very active during SARS-1. And so within within a few weeks, that research institution became under military control. In the United States, of course, nothing happened to these to these individuals. So my my point to your readers is 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 twofold. Obviously, we should have Congress looking at making laws to 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 simply stop doing this this dangerous research. I think it's a case can easily be made that that it doesn't do its purported purpose, which is to predict what would happen uh, in nature and to allow us to get ahead of it. Uh, These folks are are centuries or millenniums ahead of nature in the things they're making in the laboratory. And so it's, it's completely unrealistic that they're mitigating anything that would ever happen from nature. Um, This there, there's some technical reasons why this coronavirus in bats never 
would for, would get one of these cleavage sites called the furin cleavage site that made it so transmissible um, because it's an enteric virus in, in bats, not a respiratory. Mm-hmm. So in the GI tract, the furin cleavage site, the, the, the spike protein falls off the virus because it's been cut. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so it makes it, it can't, it can't be transmitted. And so in a thousand years of these cybercoviruses that are, are SARS-CoV-2's ancestors, it's never had one of those sites. And it's because it, it probably got one, but it didn't survive because it, it, it couldn't survive. So, but let's let's imagine we could ban the the research in the U.S. in the U.S. with Congress. Step two is then to t- to step back and say, well, what's going on in the world? And so, there's 42 labs in the world doing this dangerous research. A new another 17 under construction because you know there's there's nothing like a virologist scaring the folks with the money to to say hey you know you need to uh, we need to have our own new lab to do this kind of research so so there's 42 there's 17 more there's going to be 59 um, but there are only nine of the 59 in the U.S. and the other 50 are outside the U.S. Mm-hmm. So any reasonable policy that you know, on the national level is going to have to include what I'm calling a, 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 a viral border protection plan. So, you know, there's been a lot of talk and the, you know, the physical immigration of people across the southern border is a big issue for this national election and, and gets a lot of press around that. But I think the concept of, of, of people flying into America from the, the, the 50 countries, well, not 50 countries, but the places where these laboratories are, um, is a real challenge. And there's some very simple things that could be done. You know, one is the is the immediate testing of all flights uh, from locations where there's been a new outbreak. So, mm-hmm. you, know, w, you know, WHO gets notified there's an outbreak in Wuhan, in Wuhan, China. Immediately, the FAA and the Homeland Security, they start boarding planes from that location. Uh, the other thing that, that's been proposed and has actually been tested quite nicely is um, – you, you, you simply you do a, a sample of the bulk collection, uh, you know, from airplanes, you know, the, the toilet mm-hmm. collections. You do a very simple test in there and you can see if anybody on the plane has has a, has a lots of different infections and it's inexpensive. And, you know, so, again, you could you could either save a sample or but test what every we, What do we plane. do, say, of the eight million people who have come from, I think, 60 different countries across our southern border? We have and some of those countries are now and must be the sites of where these labs will appear, right? I don't know. Uh, Victor, that's almost a rhetorical question. I mean, the, the concept that, that we spend, you know, that we spend all this time on people, you know, that people can walk over and there's no vaccination status. I guess it's no just infection an status is, wall of Byzantium or something like that. <laughs> yes, I, yeah. I guess so there. But, yeah, but so... Uh, I, I really would lo- I would love to hear some of the the folks that are you know interested in, in important issues for American people to to step back and look at this because the other work I did and you and I have talked about this before is that we know that these laboratories in China and and elsewhere are working on 40 50 60 percent lethal viruses so SARS-CoV-2 is one percent lethal the black plague is about 15 my my uh, Monte Carlo analysis, as they call it, of looking at healthcare, energy, food supply, police, and fire. If you if you take those four and you say what what kind of virus, what kind of infection would break our system, looking at those four services, it's about fifteen percent. So so we're working in a in a space where we could set back. Um, we can set back civilization, you know, a couple hundred years because the Black Plague was a 250 year gap in European population from start to the to the dip 
back to the start again. What is the Chinese? I mean, we don't have any accurate information of how many died in China, but we do know that they did enormous damage to their economy by their various social health policies. Do they? You think that they are as scared of it what they did, or do they learn anything, or do they just take that off as cost of doing business and they feel that it's a bioweapon at some future point? Or are they? awed at what happened? Are they worried about what happened? Have they stepped up the security? Is there any way of knowing? Well, it, it, it looks uh, a lot of the post-infection uh, activities in China are a strong indication it was an accidental release. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. you know, people have, have tried to test the hypothesis. Was this a purposeful release to see what would happen or what the response would be or that sort of thing. And look at there's precedence that for the U.S. For example, the U.S. Navy sprayed serratia into the air around San Francisco to see how it would spread in the population. And actually, people died. This was in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. A, a remarkable uh, serratia is that little red mold that you get sometimes on on, you know, well-made bread that doesn't have a lot mm-hmm. of preservatives in it. So that's that's serratio. And they thought it was inert. They, they, they were using it just to to find the spores. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but people who are, you know, with cancer, or that sort of thing, or would, who would breathe it in actually died from that process. So but but it, it's pretty clear that they were not testing it. Um, for example, in February, the, the president uh, asked the, their legislature to pass a new law to say that you couldn't sell uh, laboratory animals where gain-of-function research is being done in the market uh, for people to buy to eat. It's <laughs> I, I can't make this up, but but there is what so you, that was why, a new why law. Was, why was the DOD interested, or at least even if they did eventually back out, why were they interested in a joint virology research problem that had these implications that would involve the Wuhan lab? Was it the idea that we better keep an eye on what China's doing because they might detour into bioweapons research or something like that. You know, I th- I think this I think this segue would would almost deserve a a, a yeah. whole whole segment by itself. Just a couple points out. So, EcoHealth Alliance is is the kind of the poster child of this kind of research in America and collaborating into Asia. And while they had about ten million dollars of of U.S. NIH. And Fauci money, uh, NIAID money, uh, they had about $80 million from Department of Defense over a 10-year period of time. Uh, the, the U.S. Navy was in the middle of Laos, a long ways from any water, body of water, yeah. in the middle of Laos in 2016, 17, and 18, sampling viruses in the same caves where some of the some of the bat viruses that are closest to SARS-CoV-2 were arising. Uh, the Navy's never been asked why they were they were in bat caves uh, in the middle of Laos. Uh, you know, so there is there seems to have been. <clears throat> developed a, a very strong, especially after 9-11 and when when uh, when Fauci's grant money went up extensively, a, a, a real sort of dual use approach to gain of function research, meaning let's do the civilian work and let's think about vaccines. But but we need to be prepared if someone makes a weapon of these. I mean, I think I think what are what often happens is you know every 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 military organization justifies an offensive program in the in the you know in the spirit that well yes. we have to have a defensive one and you know so everyone's doing offense and defense at the same time um what, what let me ask you what what is the status of the Dasik and the other scientist that was involved with the freedom yeah, R- of information. Like, yeah, no, what what yeah. do you think it's hap- what what is happening to them, if anything, now, and what 
might happen to them with these new Freedom of Information yeah. Act revelation. So, so during the the 2020 period, uh, when when President Trump heard, you know, that uh, about this funding and about these relationships and about Wuhan Institute of Virology, um, he cut off funding to Equal Health Alliance. There was that 77 Nobel Prize winner letter that's you know objected to this as yeah, a blockage of, you know, and then and then quietly, uh, uh, you know, during the the next presidential administration, uh, their funding has been you know has has gotten back to them. So they actually have more more money than they did now. Now, there's a new bill uh, that's been introduced to ban both them and the Wuhan's virology from funding uh, for the next decade. Um, because it's very clear if when you get, you know, I used to get, I used to get money from NIH. So yeah. down in the fine print there is if, if, if they want to see your raw data, since they paid for it, you send them the raw data. Otherwise, you know, there's all kinds of penalties mm -hmm. and Wuhan has been asked for that data for the last three years and they've you know they've not sent it so they're they're in violation of u.s laws around receiving grant money but of course there's no teeth and no has way the, to, has to the stop it field of virology uh, ostracized them or have they come to their aid are they afraid of them are there are there voices out there that say this is outrageous because ultimately yep. there's yep. culpability for all of these people who died no, Victor, no, there has not. And, you know, if you look at a historical precedence when, the, you know, the 50s, late 40s, 50s, when atomic energy was was being discovered and then it was thought to be weaponized and it had peaceful uses, there was a lot of discussion around, around uh, and, and phys it was physicists themselves, it was Einstein himself, you know, that wrote a letter saying, you know, we need to focus on the peaceful use of this and not militarize this this technology that I helped develop. In the virology community, there has been none of that. Um, they are they They really have circled the wagons. They really have continued to foster this concept that it came from nature, um, and it's 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 now it's it's almost ludicrous. It's, it it I would be embarrassed to, to to make the claims without the evidence that they're doing, but they're doing it nonetheless. And so it really is going to have to be the American people or the people of the world to say, hey. We don't want this dangerous research done anymore, and we want our government to put in place some pretty simple procedures like Taiwan did and, and some other things to protect us from pathogens moving through the world because there is a foundational change. You know, you can now go anywhere in the world in 24 hours. And if you're asymptomatic for 24 hours, you're, you're going to, it's going to be difficult. Uh, so you, you need, it, it's, we're in a challenging environment for worldwide I, spread of viruses. I, I'm a little optimistic and I don't want to get political, but I have talked to people in the DeSantis campaign, the defunct DeSantis campaign, and in the Trump campaign active, not Haley, but I'm sure that would be no different, that if a Republican should be elected, that these key points at FDA, CDC, NIH, National Institute of Allergy, Infectious Diseases, HHS, all of these groups that control billions of dollars the people that they that they have talked to me about are all dissidents and they're all they're going to have a I, I don't want to say a red line but one of the barometers of from what i can understand through people who've been talking to them or who they've asked about one of the barometers will be to what degree back in 2020 21 were you on the right side of history or were you on the wrong mm -hmm. side of history and i think it doesn't sound, I don't mean to say they're being punitive, but they're just thinking we want independent minds that have a proven record mm -hmm. of empiricism and we can trust because they're terrified 
that this can happen again. Yeah, well, you and know, that, that's encouraging I, if the, if that group of people were to come into. It, it absolutely is. You know, when 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 uh, Florida passed the first uh, gain of function research ban on the state level, uh, and I had the opportunity to actually look at the legislation and make some some uh, I think what they thought were helpful suggestions yes. in that. So they were they were very much at the forefront of that, and that was for me, you know, an appreciated gesture. Yeah. Um, but it should be federalized, and then we should also think about the border Do border we, uh, issues. Stephen, when you sum up all of this, what do you, could you make any prognosis about are, are we wiser because of COVID? Are we more, are we closer to Armageddon? What, <laughs> what, what do you look at when you look at all of this? Uh, we, do we even know? I mean, we have these Freedom of Information Act suits, but it sounds to me like we haven't even scratched the surface of all the communications and all the things they were doing that we don't still know about. Oh yeah, and and so and and these things are layered, and they take lots of work. I mean, the latest the latest Freedom Information uh, response from NIH of Fauci, some of Fauci's documents, two hundred pages, and one hundred ninety eight are redacted. Wow. So so it's it's it really is insulting to be you know sort of to be treated that way. So um, I, I think there are there there are, there are these parallel paths of of stopping this dangerous research through legislation and and some momentum around those things, which which is encouraging. But, that seems he has too much. We have too. Don't you think we have too many billions of dollars in research grants concentrated in too few hands in the government, so that they can create consensus or they could, if if you're a, one of thousands of scientists worldwide and you need this critical funding and there's just a few people four five six that control i guess hundreds of billions of dollars in research monies that seems like it's far too much power without enough oversight well it is and you know again that's a whole separate topic the, yeah they, they they basically the, the they're they're sitting on committees reviewing grants for each other so you know <laughs> One month they're mailing grants to Washington to have their peers look at the grants, and the next month they're flying to Washington to be on a committee to look at to look at the grants coming in from their from their fellow people. So it's it, it's not a true check and balance system. Can I, can I ask one uh, maybe one yep. final question? Can you think of any positive uh, in a cost of benefit analysis any positive development invention? help for mankind that's come from this sophisticated gain of function research that justified the risk? Well, if you restrict it to taking um, pathogens and changing their, you know, changing their properties. So because it, you, what they will say in their defense, and it's it's a straw man, it's I hate it, but they'll say, well, gosh, you know, when we make insulin and bacteria, that's a gain of function for the for the E. coli. The bacteria mm -hmm. didn't know how to make insulin, and we it is a gain of function. And look at you know, so why are you complaining about it? So, but that's a you need to really just pin them down on it. So, mm -hmm. uh, the answer is no. If you any research that's taken a pathogen and tried to change its properties has not taught us anything uh, useful. Would and there be a we, chance to have either a national or international ban on gain of function research. Could it ever be enforced if you did it? It would be hard to be enforced, but yeah. I mean, you know, just like the concept that we we have informed consent and institutional review board uh, uh, for human testing. I mean, the it would be it's sort of similar. Is is it possible to do human testing without a consent form and without oversight? Mm -hmm. uh, and the answer is, yeah, you could imagine that could happen in certain countries. But the truth is that 
China, that every country in the world has this process put in place because of the abuses of human testing that finally was was too much for the world to to put up with. Is there a um, t- is there a is there a sense of t- shame? Or so if you're Stephen Quay and you're at a conference of uh, biomedical CEOs or companies or virologists, and you see you someone whispers to you, that guy over there is engaged in gain of function research. Is there any ostracism or social taboo? Is that, is that field discredited now or not? Do uh, they have any shame about what? No, they, no, they don't, Victor. No, they don't, Victor. And they, they continue to have the same feeling they have, which is it's, it's a bit of I'm playing God. And it's a bit of look how edgy I am. Look, look at I'm wow. I'm putting myself <laughs> in danger for the for the good of mankind. It's it's a pathology. I mean, you know, if, if I was a clinical psychologist, you know, I could I could probably find a, a whole bunch of uh, disorders is, is that they, the they're qualifying come, for. Is the funding all coming from government or is there private entities that see any the, chance of profiteering it, 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 in it? As far as I know, it's all coming from, from the from government. federal governments in China, there are private companies that will do again this this military civilian fusion. So they'll be set up to do diagnostic testing or setting up a you know to do you know some kind of virology work, and they will have military contracts. You know, just like maybe, maybe some like of our to, as well. I'd like to warn all of our listeners. Jack Fowler and I talked about it, but uh, when I was in high school, Stephen, I worked at a packing house in a little town called Reedley. I think we mentioned it. And uh, about six months ago, as you know, somebody in Reedley, it's an agrarian community, saw all of this water and junk on the side, and they went in, and here was this Chinese company that had all of these vir- viruses. I mean, there was almost every imaginable, herpes and HIV and COVID, and they, they had dead rats that were genetically engineered on them. And then the poor... They didn't have the resources, and then the California uh, Department of Health couldn't handle it. And then they got the federal government, and they still don't know how a Chinese company that went bankrupt in Fresno under the radar went to this little tiny, you know, 12,000, 15,000-person community. Oh. And right in, it's not out in the outlet. It's right in the middle of town. And oh. they were just with all these viruses and these dead engineered rats that they were and so it, it can happen anywhere. You know, Victor, I knew that story. I knew about that lab and I thought how crazy it was, but I didn't know you had a personal connection to it. Yeah, so I, that's so, where my dentist is. That's where I uh, I, uh, go, I go a lot. And I worked in that building when I was in high school. Well, so, you know, this is literally the poster child of the issue of <laughs> of, of the, the, the open border at the south is changing the communities yeah. in the macro sense. And, it is. you know, the, the microorganisms are changing the community in the, inside the walls. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's kind of it's been fascinating, chilling. But I think we ended on an optimistic note. And I think everybody who's listening uh, should take heart to what Stephen Quay's told us and talk to your local representatives, and I know I am, to bring the to the attention that we're not out of the woods yet just because uh, we seem to be, seem to be in variants that are less lethal and toxic than the original ones. But uh, somebody's working as we're speaking and things they shouldn't be doing. <laughs> thank you very much, Stephen. Well, thank you, Victor. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to come right back. Angie's List is now Angie, the nation's largest home services marketplace. 
And Angie is here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done well. My son needed a major yard cleanup at his new home. We went straight to the Angie website and found a bunch of local, reliable, and affordable pros to handle the job, and one did pronto. Angie can help you find the best price for your project. Angie lets you request and compare quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. Angie has cost guides that tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and in your area. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com or download the app today. The app and website are free to use. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery. Welcome back. Victor, there's a new film out from the New York Times bestselling author Eric Metaxas comes a riveting new film, Letter to the American Church. The film explores the parallels between the 1930s Nazi Germany and Mao and Stalin regimes and the infiltration of the cultural Marxism in America today. The church's decision to stay out of politics undermines the very message of the gospel and its power to transform human existence. Metaxas issues an urgent call to the church. Stay silent and abandon its mission of proclaiming liberty or stand up to the forces of evil. Join Eric and several leading voices of today as they explain how America and her church are at the precipice of destruction and need to wake up and take action. Don't miss this film, streaming February 8th on Epoch TV, part of the Epoch Times. Visit letter to the American church.com for more information letter to the American church. This film is not yet rated Victor. So you're going to talk to us about Xenophon and Thucydides and Herodotus. So I'm very excited. I would be curious after you get done talking about their particular achievements, um, if you could give it, tell us which one you think is the best historian. Well, you know what I'm going to do is I've decided that because I'm such a big fan of Xenophon and he has so much more work, his corpus is huge. It's the Hellenic, Hellenica, the Hellenic history. It's the memorabilia. It's the scriptoria manora. It's the um, Anabas is the most famous. So I'm going to keep him for a separate whole episode next time because uh, I think people would should be introduced to a lesser-known historian, Xenophon. Wow, I, I would. You just surprised me. I thought you would say Thucydides was your favorite because you've written so much well, about I, and from uh, him. I shouldn't say Xenophon's my favorite historian, but he's one of my favorite writers because he was a 
quote-unquote philosophical compiler. He did what Plato did. He wrote down what Socrates said. And in addition to that, he wrote little tiny treatises, uh, biographies of Agesilaus, or a something called the Poroi, or how Attica could resume after the Peloponnesian War by using the mines. So he, it was a scientific little scriptoria. And then in addition, he wrote the famous The March Up, com- up com- Country, when Spartan mercenaries and other Arcadians and Peloponnesians, for the most part, joined Cyrus the Younger and tried to usurp or get back the Persian throne. And they that didn't work, and they were stuck in the middle of the Persian Empire as it existed in Anatolia, and they had to march all the way back uh, to the Black Sea. Thalata, Thalata, the famous, there's the sea, the sea, meaning they were safe. So we're going to talk about that next time. But right now, we have two historians of the 5th century, and the first thing to remember is that the city-state now, say, when Herodotus was born in the 480s B.C., maybe 485, or Thucydides, 20 years later, 25, 465, 460, it was a very sophisticated city-state. It's not the Dark Ages. It's not the Mycenaean period. It's this 700 to 400. We saw it with the pre-Socratics. We saw it with lyric poetry. And there's an energy there. And one of the manifestations of that intellectual energy is history, as well as tragedy, comedy, philosophy. And we saw last time epic and lyric poetry. But we don't have any of the earlier historians. There, there was someone called Hellenicus, and uh, we have just names. The first historian that's extant that survives is Herodotus. So he's, not, he's named the father of history. This is the first and earliest prose account. Prose just means it is not set to a metrical pattern. It's not in iambic pentameter, dactylic hexameter. It has a different vocabulary and every, more of a realistic or everyday vocabulary. And um, so it's not, these are not poets. They are historians. This is the first prose. He wrote in a dialect called Ionic, which is similar to the late middle Ionic or late Ionic. It's similar to the dialect at the... Uh, Iliad and Odyssey and, that are composed in, even though he was from Halicarnassus, that's a city in modern-day Turkey. We, we call it Bodrum. It's a beautiful place. It's a uh, tourist area right near across from Rhodes on the Turkish mainland. It's famous for its wooden boats, handcrafted. And he lived there. There's also the mausoleum of Mausolus at Halicarnassus. or some remains there. You might want to go there sometime. And then he traveled. He went he may have grown up on Samos where he learned the dialect, or maybe the dialect was in use, even though it was a Doric city. And uh, he went to Italy as an Athenian colonist at one point in Thury. He lived off and on in Athens. And he looked, he was born maybe five, uh, 485, so he was about five years old when Xerxes invaded. So what I'm getting at is he was alive and could talk to people who fought in that war. So is the title is Histories, but you really don't get to the first invasion, the Ionian Revolt, the, the aborted invasion of 492, the famous invasion of Darius 
uh, at Marathon, the 10-year hiatus, and the famous uh, Artemisium Thermopylae Salamis Plataea until books uh, 6, 7, 8, and 9. So the first um, of the of 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 is a discussion of the history of the combatants. And that is very valuable because we do not have a history uh, in the 7th and 6th and early 5th century of either Sparta or Athens in the detail that Herodotus offers as a near contemporary. So he's going to tell us this is how Athens became a democracy. This is how Sparta was different. And then he's going to shift to the antagonist. And remember, he he was born in occupied Ionia. So he grew up under Persian uh, rule of Darius I and Xerxes' son. Uh, I should say Xerxes' son. And so he's very sympathetic to Persian. So he has a, a long excursus. He may have gone with the Athenian expedition to Egypt in the 460s. He knows a lot about the history of Egypt as it came into contact with the Persians. He talks about how the Lydians uh, met the Persians, how the Persians met the Scythians, and the formation of the Persian Empire. And this is all sort of a preface to the climatic event of East meets West. And this starts the whole narrative or topos that the West is intrinsically different or opposed to the East. And the dividing line, the dividing line is somewhere along uh, the coast of Turkey. That's important because the word Orient, Orient, Orients, and uh, Occident have something to do with your position in that place. So when you look to the West, it is where the sun sets, Akito means to set, and when you look to the east, as it, the sun rises, and the dividing point, as I said, is the Aegean Sea. And this dichotomy will be very famous because it will last into the Roman period, where the Romans try to go into the east. Helen, uh, excuse me, earlier Alexander the Great, and of course the Great Byzantine Empire in east versus west until 1453. And we're still we're still seeing that divide today, and we saw it on surely saw it on 9/11, that there's an intrinsic difference from culture that grew up in the East versus culture that started in Greece and Rome and spread westward to to Europe, and that's one of the themes he has that the the East is monarchical, it's more absolutist. He has a famous description on the best constitution, and then to the west of the Persian Empire. It is more consensual or constitutional and more emphasis on the individual rather than the collective. And this comes through in a series of speeches. What is his method? It's very different than a modern historian. He says, this is what X says happened. This is what Y says. But he doesn't adjudicate very often. He gives you competing narratives and he tells stories. When you go to Lydia, when you go to Scythia, when you go to Egypt, when you go to Greece, this is what you see. And he had kind of miraculous large ants, huge ants and things like that. People had all discredited as just Herodotus the liar. That comes partly from the, the, 
Greek tradition and the Hellenistic and Roman periods. But the more that scholarship has examined his stories, the more accurate they seem. And the famous classicist at UC Berkeley, W.K. Pritchett, whom I knew and I really liked, he was a wonderful person, he wrote a book called The Liar School of Herodotus. And what he meant was since Plutarchian times, people had said he was a malignant uh, historian. That was the famous title of, of uh, a translation in Latin of one of Plutarch's essays on the unreliability or the lyingness the, and the philobarbaros that he liked barbarians, that is Persians who didn't speak Greek too much. But Pritchett went through and looked at all the stories and then he looked at contemporary descriptions of the same phenomenon and, phenomenon, and he concluded that Herodotus was pretty accurate. Herodotus died sometime in the 420s, that is, in the first decades of the Peloponnesian War. So that history ends with a hiatus. It ends around 479 BC. And Herodotus then, what, when did he start writing it? He probably wrote it sometimes in the 440s or 430s when he was in his 50s and 60s. And uh, it's very hard, you know, to write on papyrus with ink in, in a language that really hadn't seen prose. So he was inventing methodologies, vocabularies, grammar, and syntax as he went along. But then the idea was that if you're going to write historia inquiry, you had to have a mon monumental topic. So these are not going to be histories about social customs, clothes, gender, appearance, identity, government. They're going to be histories about what the Greeks thought were the most important elements in their life, and that tended to be war, an occasion where everything is magnified and focused and intensified. So the first great historian is going to write about the Persian Wars, even though he calls his history the histories. And then he's going to tell you why it started. He thinks it's a kind of a, I don't know to what degree people take him seriously, but it's kidnapping of various women by uh, suitors that causes friction between East and West, i.e. Paris and Helen. And he's, he's ridiculed by uh, Aristophanes for that simplistic narrative. But nevertheless, the next great historian is Thucydides. And he wrote sometime, we don't know, in the, he was born around 460, 465. There's a big controversy when he died, because he, these his, histories are organized into books or chapters later by Alexandrians. And his history of the Peloponnesian War starts with an introduction of his methodology, but then it has a big flashback of the 50 years that saw the growth of the Athenian state, the empire, and why Athens goes to war with Sparta. But then as it chronicles this 27 and a half year war, it gets to 411 in his book eight. It literally stops in mid-sentence. A lot of people earlier had said, well, he died. Well, he didn't die because he mentions in the first book that the war was ended. So what, what happened? And the answer was sometime in his 30s or 40s, he was exiled probably around 422, for he was an Athenian admiral and he came too late. It wasn't his fault, but he was blamed by the assembly for coming too late to help the key 
Athenian port of Amphipolis up in northern Greece. It was taken by a brilliant Brasidas, the Spartan commander. He came home. He was an aristocrat, perhaps with Thracian lineage. And guess what? They do what they always do to powerful people. They ostracized him or they banished him for at least 10 years. In that period, he said, okay, I will write a history drawing on my knowledge of being an admiral in this war and having now the ability to travel all over Greece and talk to Spartans and everybody. So sometime in this period of his exile, in his 50s and 60s, he, he died probably around early 60s or maybe even 60, who knows. But late 50s, he began writing this history. And I think it, we, it took a long time, so it was under constant revision. And yet the war was still going on in part. So he was revising, writing, revising, writing, revising. He may well have lived after the war ended. We, we, we you know, 460 to 400, 465 to 405. But there are a lot of people who believe now he was alive in the 390s. So when he was writing this history, he knew the end of it. Well, I should say when he was revising his earlier notes. And maybe he just thought that the theme of the history of Athenian hubris and arrogance of its empire led to its downfall and destruction. Maybe as he was writing, he looked around and said, hey, it's 398, 399, 397, 396 BC. Athens is back. It wasn't just completely destroyed as I thought. And he went back and I don't know whether the events in which he's, he was writing colored his interpretation of his earlier narrative, but he stopped, he quit. In 411, and he left 411, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4. He left seven critical years out of the Peloponnesian War. And luckily, Xenophon then, a lesser mind, but a very versatile historian, picked up where Thucydides left off to finish the account of the war in, in something he called the Hellenica. But why do we read, read Thucydides? Because unlike Herodotus, he is called a... Um, scientific historian. He doesn't just give you story A, B, C, D, E, you choose, or what he called logographia, you know, just the compilation of logoi or stories. He has a method, and he says, this is how you write a history. This is what I did. I deduced analysis from evidence. I traveled. I talked to people. I saw documents, I mean, on stone, and I compiled this. And he has uh, about 121 speeches, some direct, some indirect. And unlike modern uh, writing, unless you're Claudine Gay and you, you don't footnote, you, we usually when you hear somebody, you put it in quotation marks and you footnote. The ancient historiographical method, and it was started by Herodotus, he has speeches as well, was something along the line of, I was there and I heard this speech and I'm writing it verbatim on notes. Or, my best friend was there, or my friend or my mother, my father, somebody heard it and I just took dictation. Or, and this is where we get into trouble, I know there was a speech delivered 
and I know what should have been said, and I know that from events afterwards it was probably said, but I don't know what happened. So I just made up the speech the way that I thought. Section 21 of his first book, he says that he recorded the speech uh, as best he could, or he put words into the mouths of people that seemed most fitting or most accurate. You can decide whether that is is his own composition. So what do we do with 121 speeches? If it's Pericles' funeral oration and everybody knows what he said, it would be very hard to invent it. If it's the Melian dialogue and there's not a lot of people listening to the envoys talk to perhaps Alcibiades and his people, he may have elaborated. What is... So some of you are going to say, well, why do I want to know about what Athens did in 431 uh, for 27 years against Sparta in 404? And the title is the Peloponnesian War, so it's the war with the Peloponnese, but it assumes he's as an Athenian. Uh, when you say we had a, a war with Germany, the German War, the Japanese War, it's not from their point of view, it's from an Athenian with a twist. They exiled him. He is an oligarch or an aristocrat. He does not like the government at Athens. It's a radical democracy, kind of an Antifa-like flavor to it, French revolutionary flavor. And powerful, wealthy, well-born people get on the wrong side like he did. So he is not sympathetic to either uh, radical Athenian democracy or the empire that fuels it, that is the 180 city-states that pay tribute to it. But we read that not because the Peloponnesian War is the most important war in history, although he thought it would be in his time. That's why he chose the topic. But it's how he writes it and what's he, what he does with it. In his way of thinking, I can write a history that will be very important so people will know what happened. But there's going to be key moments where I can expand in the 27 years. There's some things that happened we know that he didn't talk about. On the other hand, there's some things that may not have been that important, the revolution at Corsaira or the debate over the fate of the people of Lesbos on Middle East, but he expands them. Pericles gave probably two funeral orations, and then his successors gave 20 of them. But we only have the second one. Why? Because either it was the best or it gave Thucydides an avenue or an opportunity to expand his views of what Pericles said or what he should have said or both. So what is his view? His view is he's a realist and he believes that human nature is tragic. Tragic in the sense that people are no damn good intrinsically, innately. However, with civilization they can reform them, their innate DNA, so to speak. So if you take away, if the lights go out in New York and there's a blackout and the DA doesn't prosecute people, then you see what, what's going on now. That's exactly what Thucydides would say. However, you have a civilization, a culture, you have deterrence, you have laws, culture, then people rise to the occasion and they're not innately savage. But war, like plague, tears off the veneer of civilization. And what's beneath it is man in the raw. Now, what does that mean? That means if you have a plague at Athens, he's going to show you what people are like when all sense of decency has to 
to be removed because people are dying like flies. So if you go out and try to scrounge around wood and make a funeral pyre, because that was the method of burning the dead, especially during times of plague, and you got your wood pyre for your father and you turn around, next thing you know, some guy's come over there at night and put his family and use your pyre to burn your, with you using your wood. Or everybody says, I'm virtuous. I'm going to go visit my friend who's got the plague. And Thucydides said, well, the people who were virtuous or said they were virtuous, they died the most frequently. I.e., there is no reward for virtue in human nature being what it was. They were nice, and then it got exposed, and he was familiar with the idea of contagion. So he's trying to show you how human nature operates. One of the things he does is, he uses the scientific method. I think he was influenced, I think a lot of people do, by uh, the Hippocratic method. So when he's talking about the plague, he says when you look at a problem, you've got to look at the origins. But first, and how do you do that? You look at the symptoma, the symptoms, and you describe them. And then when you know the symptoms, you have earlier models. So if you have a sore throat or you have postules or you're dizzy, whatever the symptoms are, then you have a type of paradigm where you can make a diagnosis. You can say what is causing. And then when you have a diagnosis, you can consult earlier therapies and treat it. And then when you treat the disease or the malady, you can make a prognosis. You can predict what will happen. Now, some of you say, well, everybody knows that. No, they don't. I mean, this happens up till Thucydides. People said that during the plague, it was uh, somebody polluted. If you read Sophocles' Oedipus, you pollute the the shrine of a god and he's mad at you or you go to Epidaurus and the god comes up with fumes and enters into your inner sanctum and you are healed if you you know you got a broken leg you get a clay leg and you put it up on the wall and say here heal my leg but not Thucydides he uses a scientific method to try to describe and analyze and predict natural phenomenon and that goes into his history so in his method Okay, there's a war with Athens and Sparta. What caused it? What, what are the symptoms of this war? Okay, Sparta is oligarchic. Sparta is Doric. Sparta is inland. Sparta is a land power. Sparta is parochial. Athens, sea power, cosmopolitan, ionic tribe. And it's a radical democracy. Therefore, they're in natural opposition. But there had to be a trigger. What was the trigger? They were allies in the Persian War. And Athens became powerful, as sea cosmopolitan radical democracies can be. And Sparta was fossilized, ossified. And so he says that a fear of Athenian power prompted Sparta to preempt and invade Attica in 431. But, but he's not saying that was the only cause. He was saying that is the trigger of innate differences. And it's really hard to know whether he means the eight innate differences could have been, you know, cemented over as they had been for 50 years when they, they had one earlier war. But otherwise, they were able to get along. But he's saying no longer, given the fear that Sparta had, 
that everybody was becoming Athenized. Athenized. It's it was so dynamic, kind of like America. So you know, we're like Athens. We're radically demo uh, democratized. We're a cosmopolitan, multiracial society. Very rich, affluent, creative, and maybe Russia during the Cold War was inward a land power, repressive, and they were afraid that we were taking over, our culture was taking over the war. That would be the, an analogy. So that is his method. Remember, though, as I said, he's writing from an aristocratic point of view as a well-born, wealthy person from northern Greece, or at least his family was. And that means that he has no sympathy for radical democracy. So there's a lot of bad guys in his history, and who are they? People like Cleon. These are the people who are the demagogoi, who try to stir up the people against the well-born or the sober and judicious. And he likes Pericles because although Pericles is well-born, he's also a democrat. So he brings, he knows how to deal with the people, and he knows that democracy is very popular, but he can constrain it, as Thucydides says, by his character and his, his education. At one point, he says the best constitution was the revolution of 411. He has this kind of crazy guy named Antiphon that staged a revolution for a few months. And it was what we call a mixed constitution. Instead of all 30 to 40,000 citizens just participating by virtue of their birth, being born in Athens, you had to have a property qualification, perhaps down to 5,000 people who had just enough property to say to the rest, I saved my money, or I was a good farmer, I didn't lose my property. Those are qualities that you, I'm not a renter, and those qualities make me better qualified than you. It'd be as if today in the United States, instead of 330 million people all equal, the history of constitutional government until, I don't know, the first three decades of our own government had it as well, was a property qualification. So we said everybody can vote who owns their home. And then we know that homeowners are 62% of the population. That means that they were either lucky or they were smart or they were careful. But that type of possession where they have to take care of it and the upkeep is a different mentality than a renter. So, you you know, you get a bunch of people over your house, they kick a hole in the sheetrock. If it's your home, you fix it. If you're renting it, you say, eh, you just put a poster on it. And the landlord will never know. That mentality is not conducive for democracy. That's the the that sums up Thucydides, and he was very influential. The problem with him is that he, although his narrative is beautifully written in, in Greek, the speeches are so philosophical and political and sophisticated. I mean, they read like the Federalist Papers that do in English. The, the concepts are so uh, subtle and nuanced, but also insightful that the language, the early Greek language, Attic, he's probably either the second or third people to write in Attic. I think the so-called old oligarch was the first, or maybe Antiphon the second. But my point is this, is that the language isn't up to it. So he has grammatical and syntactical and vocabulary constructions and phraseology that is very hard to read. So if you can be a great Greek scholar and somebody plops down a speech from Thucydides like the funeral oration or the speech on Mytilene, uh, and there are passages in there that are like deciphering. They're very difficult to quite understand what he's getting at just because 
such a sophisticated thought that the language does not have an abstract vocabulary. So what do I mean by that? So if you're talking about a constitution, you can say democracy or oligarchy. But what about the principle of constitutionality? Constitutionality, that is the idea of being adhering to a written doc foundational. You've got to make up a word for that. Sometimes you can do it with the infinitive and the article. Sometimes you can do it with a circumlocution of words. Sometimes you can invent suffixes, ismos and things, ecos and like that, and tack it on. But there are a lot of words in Thucydides that are not commonly found in the 5th century. So he was considered very difficult, at least his 121 speeches. I, I think that he's the most important or the most sophisticated thinker of all Greeks, and that includes Plato and Aristotle. He's the most brilliant mind. He's one of the best prose stylists. And uh, some of the things he writes, just they just resonate today. I mean, there's internal truths that he hits upon that you know. If you're interested, there's a very good edition by Robert Strassler called The Landmark Thucydides. Uh, years ago, he called me up and said, you know, I have this brilliant idea of having an annotated Thucydides with maps, with uh, headers, footers on every page, footnotes, uh, explanations in the margins, so that every phrase can be defined, every concept can be clarified, there's maps everywhere, and then appendices. And he asked me to introduce him to classicists, I did. And it became, I wrote the introduction to it. It became almost a bestseller as far as translations go. And then he went on, as I said, to others. He did other Herodotus, the landmark Herodotus, the landmark Xenophon. And they're wonderful editions, so you might want to look at Thucydides. For our I mean, listeners, Victor, um, if they were to pick up one or the other book, would they have trouble without some sort of um, uh, guidebook to help them with the speeches, for example, in Thucydides? And would Herodotus be easier since he's a storyteller? Herodotus is easier to understand because it's not an abstract argument. But, but because he traveled so widely, the, the sheer number of place names and personal names and Herodotus, I mean, you pick up every page has a Persian and Egyptian name or a Spartan, and you don't, and they mention places all over the world, the known world at the time. And you think, wow, what, where is Arcadia? Who is uh, Lycurgus? He's, who's this Lycurgus? Or that Lycurgus? Or Cambyses? You know, just all these names and places. Are, but when you read Thucydides, they have that as well. But the thought in some of the dialogues are very, they're, they're absolutely brilliant. They're about national character a lot. He believes that, you know, when the Spartans are trying to warn King Archidamus that you can't deal with these Athenians, you just can't deal with them. And he says, you know what, we would say, oh, that's so unfair, it's a stereotype. But they believe that, that you can make legitimate genera generalizations about a people. Not that they apply to every individual, but they say, you know what, when they try to take something, they, when they get it, they're not satisfied. When they take somebody's territory, they think, well, that was a good start. They never stop. 
And when they fail to take something, they don't quit. They don't say, oh, my gosh, that was a bad idea. They say, what did we do wrong and how can we do rectify it? They are a naturally aggressive people. They do not let anybody stay calm, not themselves, not their friends, not their enemies. And the only way to deal with these people is to defeat them. And you're kidding yourself. That's this kind of stereotype of Athenians. And, you know, the, the greatest thing, and then I'll finish, is the greatest is, is book five, the Melian Dialogue, where they go into the island of Milos. You can go there today. It's a volcanic island, beautiful black beaches. Um, and they go in during a truce, 416, and late in the year, and they tell the Melians, sorry, Melians, you've got to join the empire. And the Melians go, but we're neutral. Now, you say you're neutral, but you've always favored the Spartans, you're Dorians. And they say, yeah, but why would you want to hurt us? And the Athenians said, because if we let you go, when we know you're quote-unquote neutral, but lean toward our enemies, then people are going to think we're weak. And everybody can do that. And you'll be contained. And the Melians go, no, 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 you don't understand. If you're magnanimous... And you say, you come in and you see a people that, it's, that are different from you and you let them live and be independent, people will say, gosh, I want to join the Athenian Empire. No, I wish that were true. We didn't ask for the empire. We didn't particularly, you know, we just inherited it. And if we were to adopt your attitude, everybody would jump on the bandwagon and interpret our magnanimity as weakness to be exploited and not as magnanimity to be rewarded in like kind. I'm sorry. And then the Melians say, but anything can happen. You know, you think you, you have this big fleet and we're Melians and we'll fight and we could win. I.e., you know, look at you guys. You fought at Salamis. You won. And they said, yeah, that's possible. But if you think the Spartans ever risk anything on anybody's behalf except themselves, you don't understand the people who are your patrons. Be realistic. We're going to squash you like a bug. They said, but there's always, you don't know what's going to happen. We could win. Oh, hope, danger's comforter. So you, we can't talk to you because you put your reliance in things that are not there. They're just abstract and obtuse. And we're talking about the things that are here. Like, we're, we're strong. We're taking your island. We're going to put our guys in there instead of you. We're going to wipe you out unless you surrender. And the Melians will say, well, we think that you're wrong, number one, and we have the good cause, and we're going to trust and hope and our, and Athenians said, fine, and that's famous last words, and it gives us no pleasure, but we're going to destroy you. We have no choice. We didn't ask for the empire, but if you're imperial people and you, you know, slack off, then you're all through. And this is a theme that was earlier voiced in the history in the Middle East dialogue. And of course, so they have a siege, just like you think. The Melians have a little moment of resistance that's successful. They kind of break out of this. And then the Athenians... Thucydides says they complete the siege, they take the city, they enslave the women and children, they kill the adults that were part of the resistance, most of them, and then they parcel up the land and give it to their own colonists. And that's the end. Except, final note about Thucydides, he believes in a heroic, he's not completely 100% scientific. He does believe 
that there's a, I don't know what the word is, karma, hubris, nemesis, but there is, he's not anti-religious. He's think, I guess the way to term him is 90% of the world is rational, but 10% isn't. That means that if Victor gets in a car right after I finish and I get in a fatal accident, I can explain what I did wrong, pulling out in the stop sign, my car failed, but I can't explain why it was me that in that particular moment, not somebody else. And that is the realm of faith and religion, and he respects that. So he puts these these episodes, He he's an artist with a tapestry. So after the Melian dialogue, it shows you how arrogant the Athenians and cruel they were. What's the next thing? Book six starts, they go to Sicily. And what happens in Sicily? The tables are turned. They now... Uh, are the victims of their own hubris, and they're completely wiped out, 40,000 of them. Go over there, and he says, very few get home. And he, he does that again and again. He'll give you a great speech about Pericles' funeral oration. And so we are the school of Hellas, school of Greece. Look up on your eyes and be proud that you're an Athenian. We are the envy of the world. It's a beautiful speech. What follows it? The plague. We're the same Athenians that are supposed to be the examples of civilization, or fighting among each other to survive. And uh, so it does show you that he believes there's a irrational element in human affairs that you have to respect, albeit 90% of what we do is rational and can be explained by logic, but not all of it. I think you'll all enjoy it, especially if you get the landmark, Thucydides. So next time we'll talk about a third, less impressive uh, intellect, Xenophon, but a more versatile person that he did everything possible. He was a cavalry um, soldier. He was a mercenary, uh, went into the depths of the Persian Empire. He was a farmer. He knew about economics. He lived with the Spartans for a while. I, put it, I wrote a novel once called The End of Sparta, and I have him in there as a Spartan Sequest, not a nice guy. He lived in Corinth at the end of his life. He got sick of Athens. But we'll talk about him next time. All right. That sounds good. And thank you for that. There's so much more to say about both of those historians, but I hope our listeners um, enjoy when they read either one of those. Um, stay with us, and we'll be right back. And we're on a um, hard break, I guess. We're getting into a very long show. So we'll just take a few minutes and talk about the movie Napoleon. Stay with us and we'll be back. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. 
Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. Welcome back. I would like to um, remind everybody that Victor has a website, The Blade of Perseus. It's victorhanson.com, and you can come join it for $5 a month or $50 a year, and we will welcome you. You get access to VDH Ultra articles that come out three times a week. So, Victor, um, one of your listeners said, hey, you promised a review of the um, movie uh, Napoleon, did. and so I would like to hear that review. Uh, well, I know I was going to broadcast, so I have never um, bought a... Uh, I have direct TV for 15 years, but I never really use it. I don't think I've rented one, but I bought Napoleon, and I watched it. And uh, what what would I say? Mr. Phoenix, Walking Phoenix, what's his... Yeah, Joaquin yeah. Phoenix, Phoenix, yes. He's Napoleon, He's- but the problem is that... He's he seems on the screen about fifty five, even when Napoleon's very young. So it's an epic in the sense that each stage of Napoleon's life is shown. When he is an agent of the French Revolution, the whiff of grape shot, uh, the guillotine, the Robespierre, uh, the famous his famous uh, saving of Toulon, uh, the masterful. The masterpiece of his military career, Austerlitz, the creation of the continental system, and then the terrible invasion of uh, Russia and the incineration of Moscow, and then the first abdication, the famous scene of the Hundred Days when he meets uh, his former colleagues who are there to arrest him, perhaps guillotine him, and he wins them over by sheer force of personality, Waterloo, and then the end of the second, the end of the second reign, brief as it was, and this time he's not going to go to Pleasant Elba, but out in the middle of nowhere in the Atlantic in St. Helena, to a rat-infested, horrible place. That's not really in the movie, and then he's going to die. And so, it's, I admire what he was doing, um, in cobbling all that stuff together. And it's hard to make the transition so he doesn't try to. In other words, there's a scene, and then the next thing is five years next, and then eight, without much explanation. He just goes. The one theme that ties it all together is Josephine, this uh, widowed woman whose husband was killed in the Revolution, of course, and he and she had some strong, passionate sexual bond. That's really emphasized and one scene a little bit graphically, and um, more importantly, she has affairs, he does. He has to marry someone else, as you know from the story, for his son, a son to be born an heir, even though he's going to be gone by the time the son comes of age and the son will be, I think he dies early of tuberculosis, or maybe it was typhus, I can't remember. But that romantic relationship I, I not, I'm, I'm leaving out things he goes to we have the part where he goes to Egypt I'm not sure he was called back because he didn't leave his army in the field to, to the disastrous consequences given disease and they were kind of marooned without sufficient naval support given Admiral Nelson etc but um, what's my final take on it? I really think he gets a, a B plus for the ambition 
He's got some really eerie scenes, that scene at Austerlitz of the people, of the horsemen, the Russian cavalry falling through the ice. That's disputed. A lot of people think that that didn't happen quite to the same degree that it's in the movie. Uh, we don't, we have conflicting stories about later they looked at and they tried to get the bodies out and there weren't very many bodies, but who knows? There are things like that that a lot of nitpickers uh, looked at. But so I'm, I, I think he's impressive for the, the scope of the movie. I wish, I know that um, Joaquin Phoenix has got a lot of accolades, but he plays it, um, what's the word? He downplays all emotions. It's sort of, he's kind of sarcastic, ironic, skeptical. And so people talk more than he does. Or you don't really get a sense of the character. And and although you're covering a period of about 30 years, he doesn't age at all. He looks the same. I know that cost. So that that's a little bothersome. And then it's an effort. I don't know. I'm not a cinematographer, but it looks like the entire it, it's it's filmed through a kind of a murky lens or a gray lens. It's dark and foreboding. Mm -hmm. It's overcast. It's damp. It's gray. And so you don't really get these Lawrence of Arabia brilliant light scenes, even though he's in the desert part of the time. And uh, that's bothersome. I compared it with that earlier film. Uh, I think the Russians actually... Uh, contributed to that. And that was the Rod Steiger um, movie Waterloo that had that beautiful aerial view of Marshall Ney's charge into these British squares. And that was, there was something about, I, I, you're never going to get an actor like Rod Steiger. His Napoleon, I thought, was brilliant. And, and it was, uh, and, and he did it a very different way. He did it very emotionally and outburst and erratic and not sort of uh, Sphinx-like, so that was. But I, I thought it was a good movie. It's worth watching, but um, there's still... If you want to watch a movie about a famous Napoleonic battle and get some sense of who Napoleon was, uh, I would watch that classic Waterloo with Rod Steiger. Uh, I, I, I didn't remember the actor's name who pay, played Wellington, but he was pretty good. He, he's not in there a lot, especially the, the final scene where he, he gives him the details that St. Helena is not going to be the English countryside. And that's kind of historically in dispute whether Napoleon really believed he was going to get a pastoral retreat in, the, in the, you know, the nice hilly country of England versus a windswept island that deliberately... Uh, they gave him a shack, <laughs> not a shack, but a house that was full of mold and full of rats and unhealthy. But in any case, he was lucky to be alive. At the end, the final credits, you learn that three million uh, people died due to him, Frenchmen, probably a lot more Europeans in the Napoleonic Wars. If you want to read, you still, I think, we're... we're we're blessed with Andrew Roberts' Napoleon. Sometimes in Europe, it came. I guess it came out as Napoleon the Great. It's a sympathetic biography of a person who destroyed the old order, the old regime, and that was probably worth destroying, although I don't think Andrew made the argument at the cost that it took. But what followed was a meritocratic system, the Napoleonic Law Code, 
and a blueprint for a classically liberal Europe that might not have happened at the same rapidity had Napoleon not destroyed for at least three decades, two decades, two and a half decades, the Bourbon monarchy. The monarchs look really decadent in those, the Bourbons. Louis does. The corpulent. Um, and also, to be fair, so do uh, the Robespierre type, the Jacobins. They look creepy. And uh, the movie starts with the beheading of Marie Antoinette, which is kind of gruesome. But I would have liked to see if I was... I don't have the skills, of course, of a filmmaker, none of it all. And I think Ridley Scott's one of my favorite directors. He's a wonderful director. But I would have liked to see a more panoramic David Lean-type treatment where or a Rod Steiger like Napoleon, somebody who's dynamic, yells, has uh, bouts of raw emotion, uh, arguing back and forth with Ney, Sout, Davout, all of his generals, that type, and then, you know, heat, light, uh, all sorts of different terrain. This was more slow, gloomy, gray. Uh, you look at a lot of the acting by Joaquin Phoenix, you have to look at his facial expression and his eyes. And, he, and it was sort of, he's an idiot. That guy doesn't know what he's talking to. I'll say an aphorism right now that will, that kind of, Yeah. I don't think that was as effective. That yeah. was my take. No, I, I agree with you. You saw it Napoleon, too. Yes. yes, I did. Napoleon could have been a lot more dynamic, and he was too sedate and glib, really, for somebody who did so much, I thought, as well. Although I love Ridley Scott's films, and I felt like it didn't have enough focus on something. I think it should have been focused instead of plodding through each of the moments of Napoleon's, you know, history that that changed his and France's lives. You know, I, I would have done a focus and skipped some of the. I would have shortened the revolutionary part and looked more at his administration once he became emperor. I, I, I would have liked the key to understanding Napoleon is that he, even though he he uh, he he favored aristocratic people, they were meritocratically selected. So why did he, you don't get a sense why he's so successful. Yeah. The reason he's so successful is he revolutionized the art of war so that these, when we say the Napoleonic army of say 75,000 to 100, it was compartmentalized. It had independent core, almost like a modern army of 25,000, 30,000. It was independently, logistically Capable, so that they had wagons with food and drink and ammunition that were very scientifically calibrated to support this group. They knew how to combine these corps from different places. He had a strategic vision of deception and how a, you know, it was a series of wars against a larger enemy. He would try to break them up by pre-battle maneuver, and when they were not conglomerated, then the idea was... You, d you destroy Buchler before he can unite with Wellington. It didn't work at water. But that type, what yeah. he did at Austerlitz, trying to break up coalition armies. So he was always fighting the Spanish, the British, the Prussians, and the Russians. And in terms of manpower and wherewithal, they, he was severely outnumbered. 
But in these 60 battles, he was able to isolate each one, even if it was just a day or two before the, the, the uh, even if the battle went over three days, he segmented it so that when he actually fought, it was maybe he was only outnumbered 10 or 20,000 rather than fighting the conglomerate army of the enemy by 50,000. But you didn't get that, is what I'm saying. And, no. And there's some really colorful, brilliant people. As I said, Sut and Davut and Ney. And uh, they were brilliant commanders, uh, at Austerlitz especially, but also at Leip uh, at uh, Jena, the Battle of Jena. There were, and he owed a lot to those generals, and he selected them, and he promoted them, even if he didn't like them or even if... They were commoners or whatever their circumstances he, he promoted on the basis of merit. Even though he, you know, he governed with nepotism with his brothers the here and there. But I, you didn't get the impression that part of why he was in Russia or why he was so successful in Prussia or why he scared the crap out of the British was he was a very volatile character that was completely unpredictable, at least in the beginning. I know that... Wellington said, well, he came on the old way and we, we, we dealt with him in the old way. I mean, he, by the time he was in his corpulent 40s, he was uh, ultimately pretty predictable. But in the 1790s and, say, 1800 to 1810, he was not predictable. And he had refined the French army into a well-oiled nation in arms. And he was able to, through manpower, levies, and morale to, to field armies that were not commiserate with the population of France vis-a-vis -vis its enemies. Meaning he could get a lot of people in that army and infuse them with revolutionary fervor, attack in a column. And, uh, my God, no one knew what to do with him. Yeah. He was a loose cannon in Europe for 10 to 15 years. They were terrified of him. And, you know, you go to France today and you go to Versailles in the Hall of Mirrors <laughs> with all the great French victories going back to antiquity. And I think you get to Napoleon and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's some Verdun was they shall not pass was a victory of sorts. And the French army had some brilliant moments. But then World War II until its reincarnation under Third Army, they were not impressive as well. And then Dien Bien Phu in Vietnam, etc. But so you think that people are very critical of Napoleon given the carnage, but you go to France today and you see the monuments, the Invalides. My gosh, he's still their hero. Yeah. And Mr. Villapon, remember when he was haranguing us about the Iraq War? France will not participate in this ill misadventure, I think is his word. He, I was reading this. He wrote a long biography in, Fran in French of Napoleon. I think it was called The Gargot, Cry of the Gargoyle. Somebody listening has probably read it. It was pretty easy French to read, but my point is that um, it was an encomium to Napoleon. Well, I thought that was ironic. I wrote a column sometime at that time. I said, this is very strange. The French UN ambassador is accusing I guess he was the foreign ambassador. He's accusing the United States of being an imperialist while he's writing a encomium to the greatest imperialist in history, Napoleon. Yeah. 
Well, he does start it out very spectacularly for everybody who wants to see it with Marie Antoinette and the crowds that were watching the beheading of Marie Antoinette. That is scary. That it reminds me of the... It uh, was brilliant. That was brilliant. <laughs> what did that remind me of? That reminded me of the 2020 May, June, July <laughs> Antifa BLM rock. That, you know, when the, the cameras look at those people screaming and yelling and... yeah. <laughs> laughing and, you know, just exhilarated. Or maybe that crowd also reminded me of the reaction to October 7th on mm-hmm. our campuses. On disguise glee. Remember that professor from Cornell? I was exhilarated. You know, you, IDF yeah. hadn't even responded. All he knew was that a bunch of innocent Jewish people had been slaughtered, mutilated, decapitated, raped. And when he hears the news, I'm exhilarated, this professor at Cornell. Yeah, and I bet Rid- Ridley Scott was inspired to show just how much li- they were like r- French revolutionaries. Very uh, yeah, and we're capable absolutely. of the same thing. <laughs> so when you watch that, that, that's a good point. Because when I watched that, I thought, especially the revolutionary themes, I thought, wait a minute, these are revolutionary courts. They're kind of like the way that you treat anti-abortion protesters vis-a-vis people who burn down <laughs> an historic church or police precinct that's called revolutionary justice mm-hmm. or the january 6th or, or would be guillotined in a minute if they had their their druthers yeah even the people who never went to the capitol so it's kind of frightening to see those scenes yeah well, especially we, the demagogues that were speaking in the, the chamber the french chambers yeah i don't know exactly who they were supposed to be what well, maybe one was danton i don't know no, I think that the one I thought was Danton was actually Robespierre. Robespierre. Yeah, so he, that was worthwhile putting into the movie as well. He did yeah. a good job on that. But um, Victor, so we're at the end, and we've got a really long show this weekend that we're just finishing up. So we're going to close it down here. Uh, we like Ridley Scott's work here at the at the Bla- the Blade of Perseus here on the Victor Davis Hansen show. So we highly recommend the movie. Um, it's got more merits than demerits so definitely go watch it thank you oh go ahead oh i was just going to say that um i think the guy who played the duke of wellington rupert Everett. i don't know him as an actor but i thought he did a great job yeah he did he did he was really good he just captured wellington perfectly yeah so thanks to all of our listeners and thank you victor for a nice historical weekend Okay, thanks everybody for listening. This is Sammy Wink and Victor Davis Hansen, and we are signing off.